Welcome back to Chi Alpha. I'm so glad that I get to look out and not see the worst storm I've seen in years. We're like last week when it was pouring down rain. People came in here just soaking wet. It is so crazy what can happen a week. Amen. Now the sun's not, well, sun's not shining anymore, but it was when you walked here. It's not gloomy out. Praise Jesus for good weather. This is your first time with us. I'm so glad that you decided to join us. My name is Derek, and I'm the director here of Chi Alpha. I'd love the opportunity to meet you after service if we haven't met yet. I want to take you guys back to 2016. So in 2016, our national Chi Alpha director, so in case you didn't know, Chi Alpha is a national organization. It's not just here at UNI, but it's all across the country. Our national Chi Alpha director, E. Scott Martin, he felt like he heard something from the Lord. So as he was leading our movement to Chi Alpha, and also he spent time with other leaders from the campus ministries across the nations, he sensed the Lord telling him that we are about to see the greatest student awakening in history. And that really, this awakening was going to start on the college campus. This word that he heard wasn't just to him, but also the other leaders across the country sensed the same thing. And so this sparked a newfound prayer for awakening. An awakening is just when a lot of people get very hungry for Jesus, and we start to see society as a whole turn back to God. It's really when the world is turned on its head, and people's lives are completely changed because of Jesus. In an awakening, life change for God is not just happening in churches, but it's happening all across the world. See, the world really is being turned upside down by the love of God. In our history, we've actually experienced four of these great awakenings. The first one was in the 1700s, led by some heroes of the faith like John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards. Then we have a second great awakening in the early 1800s. We had the third great awakening in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And then the fourth and final one was in the 1960s with this thing called the Jesus Movement, led by a lot of people, one of which being Billy Graham, who's known as like the greatest evangelist or preacher to help people come to know Jesus that we've ever seen. So we've seen this happen in the past, but in our current cultural climate, I think it can be kind of challenging for us to expect God to do it again. We look at our world and we see people running away from God faster than maybe ever before. And we've seen self take the center of society and God kind of get out of the way. And now, since 2016, even more has changed, right? Back in 2016, since then, we've seen COVID, there's that pandemic thing, in case you remember that, half you spent like half your college career behind a computer screen playing Minecraft while you're going to class. We've seen racial tensions, we've seen gun violence, we've seen political divides just across our country. Really, what we've seen happen is a splitting apart of the people of our country. And so when we look at our world, it can look like it's crumbling, which is actually perfect ground for an awakening. When we think of this idea of awakening, what I want you to think of is this idea of actually dead things coming to life. So like spiritually dead people coming to life with God. See, Jesus did not come to earth to make bad people good. No, Jesus came to earth to make dead people come to life. He came to give us life beyond our imagination. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 37, this guy Ezekiel gets a vision from God. So Ezekiel was a prophet, so meaning like he heard directly from God, and then he would speak it to his people. And he has this vision in Ezekiel 37. In this vision, God takes Ezekiel to a valley. So I want you to picture this with me. Walk with me on this journey. So Ezekiel is in this vision of a valley. And as he looks around him, he sees the ground around him is full of dry, dead bones. And God... We still good? Amen. God turns to Ezekiel and says, Ezekiel, I want you to speak life 
over those bones. And Ezekiel obeys God, and as he does that, as he says, dry bones come to life, God breathes life into these bones, and these bones start to take flesh, and they come back to life. These dry bones turn into an army for God. As God tells Ezekiel, this is what I want to do with the people of, that follow me. I want to take dead things and bring them back to life. He wants to breathe life into dry bones and turn it into an army. And this is what God wants to do here. God wants to breathe life into you. God wants to awaken us and then turn us into an army to reach all of you and I with the good news of Jesus. He wants to start an awakening and he wants to use you. I fully believe that God wants to change the world from Cedar Falls, Iowa. But it's gonna take an awakening. First inside of us and then through us. Because what God has done in you, he wants to do through you. If God has changed your life in the past year or a few years, he doesn't want it just to change you for the here and now. He wants to change you so then you can reach the people around you. So tonight we're going to look at a story from the book of Luke in chapter 18. So this book of Luke is all about Jesus' life, and we're going to plop into Jesus' end of his time in ministry. He's getting close to Good Friday, Easter Sunday that we just celebrated. And right before the story we're going to read tonight, Jesus gathers his disciples, his closest friends, and he tells them, I'm about to be beaten and killed. He's actually told them this already two other times. So the third time he's telling them, I'm going to die, and the disciples can't seem to understand They've accepted Jesus as the chosen Messiah here to save the people, to redeem the people of God. But in their view of reality, the way that this was going to happen was through military victory. So this idea of Jesus coming and dying made no sense to them because their idea of a Messiah or a chosen one was of someone coming to conquer their enemies. So they just don't get it. They think it's like imagery that Jesus is trying to use a metaphor. They don't think it's reality. So after Jesus finishes telling them, like, guys, seriously, I'm going to die, I promise. Like, ah, that's really funny. No, you're not. He tries again, and then he's probably a little bit frustrated, I think. He's like, they can't seem to get it. They don't understand anything I tell them. I'm about to go and trust them with everything. But he just got to keep going. So then Jesus goes on a journey. And on this journey, Jesus meets someone who I think finally starts to get it. This is in Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. It says this. And as he drew near to Jericho, this is Jesus, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, the blind man inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Remember that, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David. Remember that as well. Have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And he came near and he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? The man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for the beautiful weather. And thank you for our Chi Alpha family getting to come back together this week. We love you so much. Amen. Amen. Since we just finished celebrating Easter, I thought it'd be fitting to tell a story from an Easter of my childhood. See, for some reason, my parents gave me presents on Easter. That's kind of weird looking back. I was pretty spoiled. And they're actually here tonight, so you can turn around and say hi to my parents. They are not really old freshmen. They're my parents, and I'm glad they're here. We're, we're, never mind. I was going to make a bad joke and call them old. I'm not going to do that. Anyway, so all my issues are their fault, so please take your complaints to them after we're done. But anyways, I'm just kidding. So back in 2003, my family moved into a new house over Easter weekend, 
And this left my parents little time to go and get us crazy gifts. So they're like, it's Easter. We don't have to get that crazy. We're going to go pretty simple. Six-year-old me wakes up on Easter morning. I go out to the living room, and I see my nice gift from my thoughtful, loving parents. My parents got me a bug catcher. A bug catcher, in case you don't know, it's this thing that you would use to go outside and, you know, like catch bugs, like a little contraption to put bugs in. Here's the thing, though. Back then and still to this day, I hate bugs, and I don't like being outside whatsoever. I think air conditioning is one of the greatest inventions in all of humanity. And see, now as a 26-year-old man with children on the way, I've developed a filter, and I, if that would happen to me now, I'd like to think I'd be like, thank you so much, and then never use it. But I would just kind of be, ha, ah, thanks. Back then, though, I had no filter. So I looked up to that bug catcher, and I looked at my parents, who were like looking at me eagerly, so excited for their kid to tell them how thankful for all this gift. I picked up the bug catcher and said, this sucks. And I threw it on the ground, and I turned around and went back to bed. That was six-year-old me. I was like, this gift is terrible. See, in that time, I can't remember what I actually wanted for Easter. I don't remember. But I do know I did not want that bug catcher. And I get made fun of for that all the time. Like, you're so selfish. You made fun of your gift. I was six. Leave me alone. Anyways, I did not know what I wanted, but I knew I definitely did not want to spend my free time catching bugs. Sometimes we don't know what we want. Other times we do know deeply what we want. We have a desperate desire in our hearts. We long for something. So my question for you tonight is, what is that for you? What do you want in life? Do you deeply long for good grades? for a spouse, to graduate, for friends, for your family to be whole again? Do you just long to feel loved, to be rid of your anxiety? What do you wish for? If you could have anything in the whole world, what would it be? The question tonight is, what do you want? And this is the question that Jesus asks the beggar. He tells him, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And even before Jesus asks this question, we actually get the answer to this question because of the beggar's behavior. See, the beggar hears the crowd freaking out, and so he's like, what's going on? And they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he responds, not by crying out for Jesus of Nazareth, but instead the beggar cries out for Jesus, son of David. This title, son of David, comes from the Old Testament, actually, so the time before Jesus. And when they said son of David in the Old Testament, that was pointing to the Messiah, the chosen one. When they said son of David, that was pointing to the hope of God's people. See, the beggar sees what the people around him could not. He sees that Jesus is not just an ordinary person from Nazareth. No, he sees that Jesus is the son of God. He sees that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, that Jesus is God. So through the beggar crying out for the son of David, the beggar shows us what he actually desperately wants. What he wants is God. The beggar wanted God, Jesus, son of David. See, the beggar was hungry not just to interact with anyone, but he wanted to meet with God. John Tyson, who's my favorite preacher in the whole world, he pastors a church in New York City. He's been in a sermon series lately called God Comes Where He's Wanted. And I think that sentence is so fitting. God comes where he's wanted. And the premise of his sermon series is also based on this idea of awakening. See, him in New York and his church, they're praying for the same thing we're praying for here at UNI, that people will turn back to God and we will see students and we will see humans and people all across our country coming to know God. So if we want to see God move in power, if we want to see our friends come to know Jesus, if we want to see the world turned upside down by the love of God, it starts with us actually wanting God. 
It starts us being hungry for the, his presence. Are you hungry for the presence of God? Is your heart a place where God is wanted? Because God comes where he's wanted. The reason that Jesus stopped at this beggar is because the beggar actually cried out to him. If the man wouldn't have cried out for Jesus, Jesus probably wouldn't have stopped. He probably would have just kept going about his day. The reason Jesus met with this man was because he asked him to. We must invite Jesus to run our hearts and to make his presence known in our lives. We need to be hungry for God and cry out for God to stop at us. This looks like us actually making time for God. See, it's easy to say with our mouths that we are hungry for God, right? But do your actions line up with what you say? Do you make time for God every day? Are you spending time with him, asking for more of his presence? Is prayer a priority in your life? Are you letting Jesus rule your life? Are you obedient to Jesus to do the things he says to do and to avoid the things he says to avoid? It goes back to that question, what do you want? Do you truly want God? Because God comes where he's wanted. So if you want him, he'll show up. If we want to see you and I turned upside down, if we want to see our friends come to know Jesus, it starts with us being hungry for God, taking time to meditate on the things of God, to think deeply about him. So do we want awakening? Do we want our lost friends who don't know Jesus to come back? Or are we okay? See, here's the question. Does our hunger fuel actions? Do we pray for our lost friends who don't know Jesus, or do we do what sometimes I can fall into and just silently judge them because of their sinful actions? Jesus isn't asking for more judges. He's asking for people to pray. Do we pray for opportunities to bring Jesus up in the classroom and then take advantage of those opportunities when they come? What do you want? Do your, does your life show that you want more of God? In John 3.30, this guy named John the Baptist is at the height of his fame. And John is given an opportunity. He can exalt himself and find fame. Or he can get out of the way to, watch, to let Jesus take over. And this is what he says, and I think one of the most convicting verses of all time. This is John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, John realized that in order for Jesus to take his rightful place, he had to get out of the way. If we truly want God, this has to be the cry of our hearts. Our lives need to be less about ourselves and more about him. If we truly want Jesus, we must be willing to decrease and give him control. Only one person can drive the car of your life. You can't both want complete control and then also want God to run your life. That just doesn't mathematically work. It's not like the student driving things when the person in the passenger also gets a car wheel. That would be weird. I was really bad at driver's ed, and I made fun of my driver's ed instructor and called her not her name. Anyways, that has nothing to do with Jesus. See, this idea, I called her Deborah, not something wrong. Her name was like Jessica. But anyways, this reminds me of when I was dating my now wife, Taylor. When my wife and I were dating, we crossed sexual boundaries, and we didn't honor God in the ways that I wish we did looking back. And this is really awkward. Now, my parents are here. I didn't realize that when I wrote it, but that's all right. We'll keep going. Uh, praise you, Jesus. You're good. I was like, I can't look up right now. I'm staring at the notes. Uh, I for, this is why you put things in your calendar and you don't forget when they're coming. We would have preached on just like kindness or something. Anyways, back to my sexual sin. During my freshman year, I was doing stupid stuff with Taylor, but at the same time, I desperately wanted to be used by God. 
I would have said in that time, I want God to run my life. I was so passionate and fiery as a freshman. Like, we're about to change this whole campus. We're going to fill up in the older room here in the CAC. And I was so excited to see Jesus change the world through using me. But I said that, but my actions did not line up with what I was saying. Because if I'm honest with you guys, I don't think I wanted Jesus in every area of my life. I clearly wanted my sin more than I wanted Jesus. God comes where he's wanted. And I missed out on the fullness of God because he wasn't the thing I wanted most. If I wanted Jesus more than everything else, then that would have reflected in my behavior. I wanted Jesus. He could have control of every area of my life except my relationship. And I think sometimes that's us, right? Like there's just one thing like, I'm gonna put that in a chest in the back room. God, you can't access that. You have everything else. Hallelujah, you're worthy of it all except that thing I want you not to know about. Jesus, praise you. Right, that at least is my story and still give me my story to this day where we wanna hold things back from God. But if we truly wanna be a place where God will come, he needs to come where he's wanted, wanted fully, not just for the good things. So maybe there's some area of your life you're holding back from God. The question is, what do you really want? Do you want Jesus to come? God comes where he's wanted. So looking back, what did I really want? I wanted the blessings of Jesus. I wanted to do cool things for Jesus, but I did not want the lordship of Jesus. I wanted the good, but not the hard. And this is eerily similar to the disciples in our story. See, the disciples, they followed Jesus for multiple reasons. I think the disciples truly loved Jesus. It's easy to make fun of the disciples. They make a lot of bad decisions. But I think they loved Jesus, and they believed he was the Messiah. They were his best friends. So I think there was some good motivation but I do think their, their motives were slightly mixed. See, because remember, they believed that the Messiah was going to come and conquer the ruling Roman Empire, and he was going to rule as king. And so maybe, just maybe, the thought that, well, if I'm best friends with the conquering king, that might work out kind of well for me, may have fueled their actions just a little bit. Maybe some perks, right? The story that we just read in Luke 18 is actually also told in the book of Mark, which is just another telling of the life of Jesus, but that's in Mark chapter 10. And right before Mark chapter 10, right before the story we read tonight in Mark, there's actually a story where Jesus asks James and John the exact same question. He says, what do you want? And James and John answer the same question that he asked the beggar by saying, well, we'd like to sit at your left and right hands, meaning they wanted to rule with him. They wanted glory, prestige, fame. They wanted to be the superstar Christians, which is why they couldn't wrap their minds around the idea of Jesus dying. So they're like, Jesus, we're about to rule this place. What do you mean you're going to die? You're going to rule, and I'm going to be junior ruler right next to you. Amen. They picture Jesus conquering Rome through military conquests, not through suffering and death on a cross. So they wanted Jesus partially for what Jesus could give them. And I think if we're honest, at least for me, that can be us sometimes. We don't want Jesus for who he is, but we do like the idea of eternal life and not going to hell. So we're like, okay, I'll agree to follow Jesus. I'm kind of scared of going to hell, so I don't want to do that. So I'll follow Jesus a little bit and go to church. Or we think, maybe if I follow Jesus, he'll bless me. So we agree to follow Jesus with the stipulation that we get good things out of it. But this actually leads us to try to perform for God. It makes us think that if I screw up, Jesus will be mad at me. Maybe he'll take away the blessings that doesn't sound like a loving relationship to me. That sounds more transactional, where we perform for God and then he loves us in return. That's not reality. Do you want the real Jesus? That means do you want the rabbi from Nazareth that not only came to save the world and pay for every sin you could ever commit and shower you with grace no matter how far you've run from him, but that's also the same God that says in order to follow me, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me every day. 
And that says, if you want to gain life, you must lose your life. It's a both hand. We must not only want the grace of God, but also the cost of discipleship. And that's a loving relationship, not a transactional one, because we don't have to do anything to earn it. We just got to follow the way of Jesus. So do you want Jesus or the things that he can give you? Because if we say we want Jesus, that means we want Jesus no strings attached, no matter what he asks of you. So if Jesus asks you to be full of grace, you are full of grace. If Jesus asks you to get up early to spend time with him, we do it not because we have to when we feel bad if we don't, but we do it because we actually want to, because we like being with Jesus, because he's our Lord and Savior. And even some mornings when we don't feel like it, we do it because we know overall we want to pursue Jesus. Just like I don't always want to be sweet to my wife, right? But I love her. And so sometimes when I'm not feeling it, like the other day when she asked me to take out the dishwasher or unload the dishwasher, I hate doing that. I did it because I loved her. See, take it out. I really don't know how to do this very well. Uh, She's much better than I am, but that's okay. We follow Jesus even when we don't feel like it because ultimately the answer to the question of what do we want is we want Jesus. So if Jesus asks you to devote your time in college to seeing this campus turned upside down, we do it because we love Jesus. Do you want to see awakening on this campus? Will you do something about it? Do we want Jesus even when it's hard or uncomfortable? See, this is really what the difference was between the beggars and the disciples. The beggar, he was anything but self-sufficient. On his own, he led his life. And what did it lead him to? It led him to begging on the side of the road. The beggar realized that he could not do life on his own. He knew that he couldn't trust in himself. He knew that when he's in control, things don't go well. The disciples, on the other hand, had some moments they got a little big-headed, like, what's up, I'm the disciples of Jesus, and I'm about to kill this. They're a little too confident in themselves. Let's scroll back to Luke chapter 9. It says this, but the people did not receive him as in Jesus, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, hey, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But then Jesus turned and rebuked them. I don't want to be rebuked by Jesus. That sounds terrifying. But anyways, see, some people weren't like nice to Jesus and receive him, and they're like, Jesus, we got this. How about we call some fire, light them up, baby. Boom, city, they're ready to go and send these guys packing. They're confident in themselves. They're not even like, Jesus, will you send fire down? They're like, you want us to call it down, baby? I got the number, I'll call God, G-O-D, send it down, baby. I think it's a little bit clear that the disciples didn't quite understand the heart of Jesus. See, at different times, the disciples struggle to kind of think that they're awesome. But the beggar, Oh, the beggar understood his own depravity. He knew he was nothing without God. If we want to see God move in our lives, we must recognize that we need him. If we become self-sufficient and think we can handle this life on our own, we will never cry out to God. We'll never cry out, Jesus, son of David, because we won't feel the need to because we'll think we have this. And remember, God comes where he's wanted. So if we don't want him, he's probably not going to come. God doesn't force his way into your life. So if we want to see God move, it starts with recognizing that we cannot do this life on our own. It starts with us being honest. We need to be honest about our struggles and shortcomings. You are never expected to be perfect in this room or in any room when you're with King Jesus. He does not expect perfection, but he does value honesty. Where you're honest about where you're at. Instead of just trying to justify our own brokenness. Think a lot of times you're like, yeah, I'm screwed up, but it's because of this, this, and this. That person did it. They looked at me funny, so I got angry and flipped them off, and they cut me off. and No, just don't get angry and flip someone off. Be honest, and it's okay. You don't have to be perfect. That's the beauty of following Jesus is we can be honest. So see, honesty, it will breed humility, which will then breed hunger. Honesty will lead to humility, 
which will lead to hunger. So the first step to being hungry after God and to wanting God is being honest about where you are at. And then you'll humbly come to God and tell him. I think often, if we're honest, we hear a talk like this, and we're like, yeah, I wish I was hungry for God and wanted to read the Bible all the time and worship Jesus and jump around up front, but I just don't really want to do that. But we think we got to fake it. So we're like, I'll act like it and it'll be okay. And like, you can't tell God what we're actually thinking. God knows what's in your head. You don't have to lie to him. It's okay to tell God, hey, Jesus, if I'm honest, I'm not hungry enough for you. I don't want you the way that I wish I did. Help me. I promise you, if you pray to be more hungry after God, he will deliver. The lights came on when I said deliver. That was awesome. We got to get this more synced up. Hallelujah. Anyways, if we ask for God, he'll come because God comes where he's wanted. But we need to be honest if we don't really want him and say, God, I want to want you. The beggar shows us that if we will cry out for Jesus, if we will want him, he will turn our worlds upside down in the best way possible. After the beggar cries out to Jesus, Jesus comes to him and asks him that question, what do you want? In this moment, the beggar could have shrinked back and like, uh, never mind, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Don't look at me now, run away. He could have said, I just want some food or money. But instead he goes for it. He's like, I got one big wish and I'm going for it. I want to see. That takes some bold faith to be like, hey, I just met you. Call me crazy. Nope, sorry, I won't sing that stupid song. Anyways, I just met you. And to ask him for something that can completely change their life, to ask him to reverse the thing that has held him back, the worst thing that had ever happened to him, he asked this random stranger to do the impossible. That's some blind faith, right? Get it, blind, because he was blind. Ah, uh, yeah. Ah, oh, that was good. Thank you. You're right, Jesus. That was good. Amen. Uh, the beggar trusted that Jesus could do the things that he said he could do. Thank you, Catherine. Oh, I'm going to miss her cackling. Sometimes I make jokes and she's the only one who laughs, but it's so loud it just feels like the whole room's erupting. It's awesome. Anyways, that's Catherine. Meet her after service. Give her a hug. So the beggar trusted that Jesus could do the things that he says he can do. The question is, do we? Do we trust Jesus is who he says he is? When we pray, do we have faith that God will actually come through? I think often we have really bold prayers and dreams, but we're so scared to pray them. So we settle for easier prayers because we think they're more likely to come true. And we like, don't want to put God to the test or worried he won't be able to be God. He is God. He can be God. So maybe there's someone in your life who's really, really far from Jesus. And it can be hard for you to pray for them because you just see there's no shot they're coming to know Jesus. But instead, you're like, I'll just pray for my roommate who loves Jesus and comes to Kyle every week. But they said the D word the other day, so I better pray for their salvation. They ran from God. No, yes, you can pray for them, but pray for your friends who are far from Jesus. See, our job is not to see the probability of our prayers being answered. No, our job is just to pray them and to trust that God is who he says he is. I know personally, I'm often scared to pray for some big things, like healings, for example. It's easy to doubt that God can actually heal people, change people, but that shows a lack of faith. But the beggar shows us bold faith, and he shows us that bold, faith-filled prayers lead to answers. See, I don't want my lack of faith to lead to a lack of praying, to lead to a lack of God moving. I want to do everything I can to invite God into the situations around me and then leave the results up to him. It's not like God owes it to me to answer my prayers if I pray boldly, but I don't want to get to the end of my days. And Jesus said, if you just would have asked, that would have came through, but I'm not going to force myself upon you. God comes where he's wanted. I want to say I did everything I could and then left the rest up to Jesus. So personally, I know I need to pray with more faith. So when you look at your own life, are you a person of faith? 
For example, do you actually believe that God can bring awakening to you and I? Do you actually believe that God can fill this room? That'd be pretty nutty, right? Kind of seems impossible. Look up, there's a lot of seats up there. During COVID, I had to preach up there, and it's kind of crazy. But anyways, it can seem impossible, but let's be full of faith. Let's believe God can do something that doesn't seem to make sense. I would rather be blindly full of faith and risk looking silly rather than be too scared to ask God to do something that seems impossible, and then he never does it because I never ask. Let's believe bold things and see what God does. After the beggar's full of enough faith to pray a bold prayer, his prayer for sight is answered, and his life is never the same. He experiences eternal awakening as his world is changed. And this leads him to praise and glorify God. The awakening inside of him was infectious to the people around him. As they see him glorifying God, they start to also praise God. So if we want to see awakening on our campus, it starts with having an internal awakening in our hearts. So as Jesus will make his home in our hearts, we will start to live different lives. Our lives will be defined by Jesus, and this will look very different to the people around us. See, our holiness can prompt curiosity as to why. Why do you live like that? Why are you so kind? Why do you never gossip with me? Why don't you go out and party and drink and smoke? Why don't you do those things? Why are you different? As we give glory to God with our lives, and as we live as an example of a Jesus follower, that will change the world around us because we actually look like a Jesus follower. And that will change our campus more than any sermon ever could. Nothing I say up here is as powerful as you living a life after Jesus. You living a sold out life for Jesus is the key to awakening on campus. Not what I say, not powerful worship, none of that's gonna turn our campus upside down. The thing that'll change the campus around you is you actually living different than the campus around you. Because then they'll be curious as to why and then that opens the door up to King Jesus. See, I'm not the key to awakening. You are. Through you living a life of faith, a life that's actually changed by Jesus, then the campus will notice and they will act like the people did around the beggar. And this will drive people to the feet of Jesus. Our witness about Jesus is only as powerful as our lifestyles after Jesus are. If we preach Jesus but do not live Jesus, our words will have no effect. However, if we live Jesus, we won't even always have to preach Jesus because our lives will do more of the talking than our mouths ever could. The beggar's faith changed the world around him. So can yours. So we've examined this story from the beggar's perspective, we've looked at the disciples' perspective, but we're missing one character's point of view. That would be Jesus, of course. As Jesus is going on his journey, this is a hot, sweaty, challenging day. His followers won't listen to him. They don't understand. He's about to die. And it'd be easy to become introspective. It'd be easy for Jesus just to worry about the things in his mind, the things around him. I know if I was in that situation, the last thing I would be doing when no one gets me in, it's just a rough day, is to be worried about helping other people. And that's why I'm not Jesus. Jesus is walking. He sees this blind beggar crying out to him. It would have been so easy to ignore him, specifically in this society. This society would have said that the beggar did something wrong, and that's why he's blind. They would have thought of the beggar as lower than human, having no worth. So honestly, Jesus stopping to talk to him is going against the grain of society. It's not like now where you'd feel kind of awkward, like passing the person who's begging. No, back then, like, yes, pass him. They don't deserve it. But Jesus, so we have to realize, what did Jesus want? Jesus sees this beggar and he realizes he gets to do what he does best. I think Jesus gets a little excited. Jesus gets to show someone love. Love is not just being nice to people. 
Love is not just having nice feelings towards people. Love is action. Love finds a need and then meets it. That's how Jesus defined love, by finding needs and meeting them. And Jesus saw huge needs. Not only did this man need a savior, he needed money, he needed clothes, food. The man needed to see. Jesus wanted to meet every one of these needs, so he does. When Jesus sees an injustice, he does something about it. When Jesus sees a need, he meets it. Jesus doesn't just have good thoughts about it. He didn't just study up on the guy's blindness and like learn why the guy's blind and just worship and thank God that eventually he's gonna come to heaven and it'll all be good. No, he sees the blind person and he does something about it. Too often we get focused on learning the right things, worshiping the right way, going to Chi Alpha Small Group, being the best participant in church we can be, getting filled up spiritually for ourselves. But Jesus is not looking for more people to watch. Jesus needs people who are willing to act. Jesus needs us to get off the bench. Jesus needs us to see needs and then do something about them. Our hunger for God should fuel our action towards God. I think often we see needs and we have heart to see change, but we never do the work to see it actually take place. For example, maybe you have a heart for the poor. That should drive you to generosity towards the poor, not just complaining that other people aren't taking care of them. Maybe you have a heart for more diversity in Chi Alpha, and I love that heart. That should drive you to meet friends that look different from you and invite them to our community. Maybe you have a heart to know God. That should drive you to spend time with God, to read books, to listen to podcasts, read the Bible. Hunger without action does not change anything. Hunger must fuel our action if we want to see true transformation. So imagine if the blind beggar who's hungry after God, he gets healed, but then he just keeps sitting there with his eyes closed, like, thank you, Jesus, for healing me, I think. I don't know if you did, but I think you did it. And just sitting there with his eyes closed continually and never opening his eyes and exercising the gift God had given them. We would think he was ridiculous, right? Open your dang eyes. You're not blind anymore. Sometimes we cry out for God to do things for us, but then we act like we're still blind. That seems ridiculous. Our actions should actually change if we're hungry after God and we want him to move. So if we're hungry for awakening, this should drive us to action. It should drive us to live missionally. It should drive us to sacrifice our immediate wants, our time, our comfort zones, in order to see awakening on campus. If we want to see you and I turned upside down by the gospel, we must be willing to do our part to see that happen. This might look like stepping into small group leadership, which is the most practical way to make disciples on campus and make a difference for the kingdom of God. It might look like you sacrificing and stepping into that calling, as I know people are in that season, specifically people have been around for a little bit. It might look like you actually doing that and saying, I'm going to give my life to the students around me. This might look like having Jesus conversation with the people in your dorm, with your classmates, not wearing your AirPods into class and then popping them out just to listen and popping them right back in when you get to leave, but actually like making friends with people on campus. This might look like praying for our campus over the summer, because even though you might leave you and I, you and I still need to save you, right? So we pray for Jesus. If you're graduating, that looks like continuing to pray for Chi Alpha and continuing to pray for God to move here. It could also look like you giving financially to things like the Chick-fil-A party to keep seeing God move on campus and moving through that. Or maybe if you're coming back to campus in the fall, it looks like you praying for Jesus to move and doing what you can to be a part of the mission of God on campus. We just said we live missions, right? We live missions at Cedar Falls before the rest of the world. We gotta start here. If we're not willing to do it here, why are we willing to do it around the world? even though the video is cool. Thank you, Aaron. See, it's easy for us to get excited about God moving on campus and to speak with our mouths that we want to see awakening, but the true test of whether or not it's going to happen is if we are willing to do anything about it. Our actions will dictate whether or not we see awakening. Our words will not. So what do you want? Do you want God to fill this room? 
Not just to proclaim the name of Chi Alpha, which is a ridiculous goal, but to proclaim the name of King Jesus. Do you want God to use you? Do you want God to use your life to show the love of God to people? Have the faith to trust him. It takes faith to tell your friends about Jesus. I know this is challenging. I was a college student not that long ago, and I was the kid who like, wanted to wear AirPods. I didn't have AirPods. I had wired headphones. I was lame. But, and then not want to talk to anyone and sit in the corner. So I get it. I understand that when the idea of talking to your friends about Jesus, you risk looking silly, maybe being made fun of. What do we want? Do we want God? And do we trust that he'll sustain us and that it's okay if we look stupid? Do we have faith to trust God to see our friends come to know Jesus? See, I want to trust God when he says he wants to bring awakening to campus. And then I want to have the faith to act like he can actually do it. God wants to use us, but we do need to do our part as well. So the beggar is sitting on the side of the road, and he is asked, we get to the culmination of the whole story, beggar, what do you want? In this moment, I guarantee immediate needs started flooding the, be- the beggar's brain. He was hungry. He's like, oh, a burger would sound real nice right now. He's thirsty. He's thinking about a nice cup of water. He needed a place to sleep, a job. So many things that could have helped his present circumstances. But he doesn't ask for any of those. He just wants to see. See, the beggar recognizes that money, food, those things are all going to fade. But sight, sight would change his life. See, the reason that this story is placed right after the disciples fail to recognize who Jesus actually is and what he actually came to do is because Luke, the author of this book, is telling us that the disciples were actually the blind ones. The disciples thought fame, victory, prestige, even religion would lead to fulfillment. But the beggar shows us that the only answer to the question of what do you want that will actually fulfill us and change our lives is answering that question by saying, I want to see Jesus. Only the sight of Jesus is enough. Personal glory, success, sex, pleasure through things like weed, alcohol, popularity, good grades, more time on Netflix or YouTube, money, your parents' approval, none of it's going to fulfill you. Not saying all those things are bad things. Please get good grades. Those are good things. But they won't fulfill. But the beggar, he knew that Jesus could actually give him what he truly wanted. It actually goes back to the way we started tonight. That vision that God gave to Ezekiel. See, dry bones, dry bones surround us. Our lives are filled with spiritually dead things that rob us of life. Jesus is looking at you, and he doesn't just want to scratch a momentary itch. He doesn't just want to feed you when you're hungry right now. He wants to feed you for a lifetime. Imagine you're the beggar sitting there on the side of the road looking at Jesus, and he says, what do you want? See, what Jesus wants is he wants to breathe life into your soul. Jesus wants to awaken you to a greater reality. So if you're feeling empty, if you feel like something's missing, if you keep trying to find worth through various things but they keep coming up short, it's because we're not answering the question of what do we want with a good answer. Only seeing Jesus works. See, doing the right things, that's not enough to breathe life into your dry bones. No matter how moral you become, you will not feel fulfilled with a transactional relationship with God until you meet the real Jesus that tells you you do not have to nor can you earn the love of God until you meet the real Jesus through actually spending time with him, through getting to know him on a personal level, not just doing religion and going through the motions, until you get to know the authentic rabbi that was born in Nazareth or born in Bethlehem and lived in Nazareth, until you get to know that person, 
you'll be full of dry bones. Doing the right things aren't enough to give you life. However, doing the wrong things also will not breathe life into your dry bones. The things in the world around you, sin, they won't breathe life, but actually destruction. See, the reason that God gives us a picture of what our lives should look like, the reason God tells us what things are good and what things are bad is not because he wants to give us guidelines to steal our fun. Jesus is God of the universe. He's not interested in stealing your fun. No, the reason Jesus gives us instruction is because he knows that the things of the world, they don't give us life. They keep our bones dead. The reason Jesus gives us a way to live is because he knows that's actually the right way to live. And he's God. He designed the universe. And so maybe, just maybe, he knows how best to live this life. And Jesus wants to breathe life into your dry bones. Jesus isn't out to steal your fun. Jesus is out to give you life. In Kai Alpha World, we define hunger as hunger is seeking to grow closer to the king and to expand his kingdom. There's two parts to this to get the full picture. First, we cannot settle for just growing closer to the king. Everyone's like, what? Hear me, walk with me. This means our focus in life cannot just be our internal life with God. Yes, this all starts with being hungry after God and getting to know him better. But we can't stop there. If all we are focused on is learning about God, getting spiritual heebie-jeebies and getting filled up and personally growing closer to God, if that's our only focus is our personal life with God, we will still come up short. If all we do is fill ourselves up but never pour out, we will become spiritually obese. And obesity in any area of life is a negative thing. Constantly filling up on the things of God but never pouring out does not lead to health. It leads to obesity. See, the awakening that God wants to do in us must explode outward to an awakening around us. We have to also focus on expanding his kingdom. We're to live for something greater than just ourselves. We're to live for other people. We're to seek to show our friends the love of Jesus and be willing to pour out what God is pouring into us. Just like in any healthy diet, you take in calories and you work calories. You take in and you work out. That's like life with God. You take in things from God and then you pour them out for other people. God doesn't just speak to us for us. He speaks to us so that we can show the world around us his love. We are not meant to be spiritually obese. This is why we encourage you to live a life on mission, to make disciples, to do things like lead a small group. Not only is it good for campus, it's good for you. Obesity kills. And we conquer spiritual obesity by not only filling up on the things of God, but also pouring out the things of God by living our lives to meet the needs of other people. As we become hungry for the king and seek to expand his kingdom, this will fuel the next great student awakening. The main idea tonight is when we awaken to the king, we will see kingdom awakening. When we awaken to what God wants to do in your life and then through your life, we will see our campus turned upside down by the gospel of Jesus. For one last time, I want to go back to our scene from tonight. I want to zero in on the beggar. See, the beggar was sitting on the side of the road hopeless. Like I said, his culture would have told him that it's his fault he's blind. So this beggar would have thought that it was his sin, so he'd been ashamed, he would have been broken and alone. And maybe that is you tonight. 
Maybe you haven't been walking with Jesus. Maybe you've been feeling really guilty as you sit here, and that's not the goal. Shame is not from God. But maybe that's you. You're feeling shame for something. Maybe you're feeling alone. Maybe you feel empty inside, and you've been trying to do life on your own, but it just left you on the side of the road. Or maybe you've been doing life on your own, and externally, actually, everything seems great, but internally, you feel deathly alone, and your life's full of dry bones. The reason is because if we don't have Jesus, we become separated from God. See, our sin makes us spiritual beggars. When we choose things that are not of God, we become spiritually in poverty. But the beauty of this story is as Jesus healed the blind beggar and gave him life, he can do the same thing for us tonight. Jesus looks at each and every one of us alone, broken on the side of the road, blind to the things of God, and it breaks his heart. Jesus is like, yeah, that's what you deserve. Your sin should leave you on the side of the road. No, he's like, get up, my son, my daughter, let's fix this. And the way he actually fixes this is through he came and he lived the perfect life and lived the life that we were called to but couldn't do. And then he comes and he dies on a cross to pay that penalty, to make it so we can actually be connected to God because our sin deserves punishment, but he didn't want us to pay that punishment. So he took the punishment for us. And he dies on a cross. And then three days later, he rises from the grave, defeating our spiritual poverty and breathing life into our dry bones. The story of Ezekiel 37 is what God wants to do in your life tonight. He wants to take the dry, dead things inside of you and breathe life through you and see your life turned upside down because of King Jesus. See, even though we deserve to be spiritual beggars, we can turn into kings and queens who rule alongside their Savior. If you accept Jesus as your Lord, your dry bones will come to life and you can be set free. Maybe you've accepted Jesus once, but you've seen some dryness and deadness get in your bones. Jesus can breathe life. Jesus can breathe life. You're not too far. I promise you haven't ran too far away for him to breathe life over you. So it goes back to this question, what do you want? You and I are the beggar on the side of the road, and Jesus is looking at you. What do you want? If you want life, I can give it to you. But God comes where he's wanted. He won't force himself upon you. So what do you want? Here in Chi Alpha, we desperately want awakening. We have this vision of seeing every seat in this auditorium filled up with people worshiping their king. We give our lives to seeing this campus turned upside down by the good news of Jesus. And this will only be possible if we are first hungry after God because God comes where he's wanted, and then we're hungry for the people around us. So if we will answer the question of what do you want with I want the king and I want to expand his kingdom, we will see the next great student awakening start right here at UNI. And then, and only then, will we change the world from Cedar Falls, Iowa. Will you stand with me? So I know some of us are here tonight, and we resonate with this idea of spiritual deadness inside of us. Maybe you've been running from God. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus, and you want Jesus to breathe life into your dead, dry bones. I want to give you an opportunity to outwardly show that you want this because it takes some guts sometimes. We need to be outward and wanting God. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to count to three. And when I count to three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand as an outward sign to God saying, God, I need life. Breathe life into my dead bones and accept him as your Lord and Savior. If that's you, raise your hand on the count of three so I can know who I'm praying for. One, two. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. 
Jesus, thank you for breathing life into our dead bones, God. Thank you for not leaving us on the side of the road as beggars, but loving us enough to come take our place as the beggar so we can take your place as king or queen. Jesus, we love you so much. Amen. Amen. Now for the rest of us. If you're here and you follow Jesus, and maybe you actually need some life also breathing into your bones, or maybe you just want to see this great awakening, and maybe your hunger hasn't turned into action, or if there's something that God is stirring inside of you, what I'm going to encourage you is as we sing this song, I encourage you to come up front, pray, you can kneel, you can stand, get out a little bit of your seat as an outward sign to God that you want to see awakening happen. Move around. Let's fill this room with worship of our King tonight and cry out for awakening. So I'm gonna pray when I'm done. Come up here, fill the room, whatever you wanna do. And then as we sing this song, worship Jesus and cry out for awakening. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness, God. Jesus, we ask for the next great student awakening to happen here, God. Use us. We are ready and willing, God. Change the world from Cedar Falls, Iowa, not through anything that happens on a stage, but through what happens in these students' lives, God. I pray that you will awaken their hearts to the things of you, and then that will in turn awaken our campus to the goodness of you, Jesus. We love you so much. Amen. Amen. Come up front, spread out. Let's worship Jesus together.